Welcome back to episode 10. Is this 10? <laughs> yes, this is 10. Double digits, baby. <laughs> Double digits. The mic cannot hear you dancing. Okay, sorry, I was dancing. Just I don't know, know how to that convey dancing. <laughs> I'm not dancing, it's just these two. Um, but yeah, welcome back. Sarb's the grump of the podcast. That's true. Yeah, welcome back. And we are very excited today because we are going to do our In Dialogue series. And this time we have Ira Mukorti. Who's, a, who's an author, historian. Uh, she's written several books about the Mughal period in India. And we'll give a little bit of context of when the Mughal period was. Ira's books uh, deal a lot with the retelling of uh, stories of uh, Indian women in history because uh, she rightly felt that their stories were not told in a proper way. They were not represented uh, very fairly. The Her first book was called Heroines, Powerful Indian Women of Myth and History. And her second book uh, was called Daughters of the Sun, Empresses, Queens and Begums of the Mughal Empire. And so the Mughal dynasty spanned around 200 years uh, in India. Uh, starting in the early 1500s, going all the way to the mid-1800s. So that's about 200 to 50-ish years. And for our non-Indian listeners and for anybody who's not familiar with Indian history, the Mughal dynasty most famously is responsible for the Taj Mahal, but also a lot of the beautiful monuments that you see in northern India, in, in and around Delhi and Agra. They were uh, an empire that came just before the British. So they are a fairly recent uh, in terms of history of uh, of the subcontinent and, are, and also have have had a huge role to play in the culture of the country. Uh, they've brought in the Persian influence. Uh, they brought in a lot of the food influences that we've sort of talked about in this podcast. Did I miss anything? Interestingly, also, um, and we'll discuss this with Ira, you know, the in the later period, the Mughal emperors, they intermarried with the Hindu Rajput uh, families. And so they had a lot of, uh, you know, cultural influence that was integrated, this Rajput Persian uh, cultural identity. And we're, we're going to be exploring, um, you know, these alliances and these Rajput uh, princesses that became Mughal empresses as well. Yeah, and Ira's focus is primarily on what are called the Great Mughal. So it's from Babur to Aurangzeb. And that's kind of the period of time we're looking at. And um, if you're listening to this, and you're still confused, pause, go to our Instagram. We've uploaded just like a quick little history for you to kind of have, have context of when, where, who these people were. I will let you know ahead of time, there's a huge cast of characters. So, um, you know, please feel free to keep exploring and researching for yourself. This is a fascinating time in Indian history. So the book, uh, Daughters of the Sun specifically, spans six generations um, of Mughal families and emperors and their sisters, mothers, wives, uh, daughters, and so on. Um, so just to give you a sense of the lineage and the time span that we're talking about. So it's it's a very important part of Indian history. So anybody who's remotely interested in Indian history cannot do without reading about the Mughals. And 
we are very excited today because we are joined by author Ira Mukherjee. Welcome, Ira. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for coming to the podcast. We are very excited to talk to you. So Ira is the author of many books. One of her books is called Daughters of the Sun. Another book is called Heroines: Powerful Indian Women in Myth and History. So a lot of her books are based um primarily about kind of retelling the story of the history uh, of Indian women from the Mughal period and from some other periods as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ira? Yes, that's right. Daughters of the Sun is strictly the women of uh, the so-called Great Mughals of India, you know, from Babur to Aurangzeb, mm-hmm. and heroines covers a greater uh, arc of time and sorts of women. So that's that's broader in theme, uh, but it's also the stories of women. Could you tell us a little bit about what is it about the history of these women in india that that you read and that made you want to go back to the sources and say no no i need to start the story again because this is not how it should be done or there we are missing something out yes well you know that's an interesting question and uh, it really points to the very core of why i do uh, what i do is this i started thinking about this when my i have two daughters and when they were quite small and i was looking for stories to tell to them um you know books to read to them about women that inspiring women that they could you know talk about amongst themselves and aspire to become role models things like that but when i looked around me all i found were women from outside you know the indian sphere so those were very attractively packaged and presented to young children but from within indian women the stories i found were so unidimensional so whitewashed all the women were like goddesses really you know and i felt that for young girls growing up now in the 21st century you know they have to fight against a lot of very uh, interesting and attractive uh, you know uh, life stories out there so i thought if we keep telling them about sati savitri sort of women firstly this cannot be true this cannot be how all indian women have always been absolutely perfect and secondly we're going to lose out on this uh, generation of young girls young women growing up because we will not be able to capture their imagination so i thought it would be an interesting project to go to the sources to go back to the origins to see how these stories were told in the time of these women you know whether it is 100 uh, years ago 500 or 2500 years ago what were they like in their own time and bring it back into the 21st century and make them relevant again right i'm very interested in talking a little bit about your process uh, you you write about it in the book but you know also for our listeners if you mention how a lot of these histories were you know hidden in plain sight and obfuscated and um, not passed down due to various reasons can you describe for us the process of your research and and finding the narratives for you know this book and finding you know other female re- when researching other female figures in medieval history Yes yeah, so um you know it's an interesting thing uh and um it, it comes out of my background uh, a little bit and uh, you know my background is very typical uh, of someone of my generation growing up in India because you know if you were slightly uh, academically uh, inclined you were told oh stay away from the humanities stay away from literature you must get into the sciences you know if you are a good student um and so i really nearly sort of got into the sciences and i did 5 years of post grad in in the sciences uh and so i'm a scientist by training 
but my love was really literature you know and so along the way when i got this chance you know a, a second career almost when my my children were growing up uh, and i saw so you i was able to use these skills you know the scientific skills the skills of research of being able to analyze things of being able to judge sources for example because really uh, the base of my work is a lot of research uh, the material has to be excavated especially where women are concerned you know as you were saying um, it's often hiding in plain sight so you will have um, a source uh, written by a woman for example gulbadan begum you know who was um, akbar's aunt and babur's daughter the daughter of the first mughal emperor of india so she has actually written a fantastic piece of work a biography written from within the mughal harem a unique document there is no such document anywhere else. Uh, and yet having written this wonderful document in the 16th century it was completely lost to us lost physically lost to us subconscious even no other uh, biographer in the next centuries ever referred to this writing whereas they would always refer to obviously abu al fazl and all the the famous men um, biographers but gulbadan was entirely forgotten until by a very fortuitous um, set of circumstances it was retrieved in the late 19th century went to the british library was translated into english in the early 20th century and finally became available and still for a hundred years no one thought to look at this document in english lying in front of us because no one thought a woman could have possibly written anything of much uh, use from within a mughal harem and it took a woman a historian ruby lal to look at this document and say hang on a minute we have this incredible source telling us about what life was like in the mughal harem alongside the mughal pachta this is a unique document this is an extremely valuable document let us put it on par with all the other resources we have so just one example you see that we have this resource but we ignore it we belittle it it and so because of because we don't put any uh, importance on it it literally disappears from our sight so it does take a little bit of extra scavenging if you like when you're looking for sources that deal with women but it's not that they're not there they do exist they just take a lot of patience yeah so kind of going off of that i was really struck when i was reading um daughters of the sun of what i started to think of like the testosterone washing of history right like these women like i don't know if there's a better term for it but that's just no, like very good <laughs> um so like these women served as, as advisors they were like pivotal in establishing this empire yet they've been like very conveniently removed from history right the, i think the most famous mogul woman might be mumtaz mahal but only because her husband built her this apparently you know token of love or whatever exactly he's the one that's known as an object of desire as an object of his affection but not Correct. as a woman in her own right so i'd love to hear your thoughts on like what led to this erasure like these women are just gone i hadn't heard of gulba then till i read your book yeah yeah no that's a wonderful question um and the problem lies that uh, you know in india not only is history written by men so that we have a patriarchal rendition of everything but uh, for many hundreds of years it was a colony and so we have a colonial narrative uh, so a lot of our history has been interpreted and handed down to us by the english so the english when they were writing about uh, you know their predecessors the mughals for example obviously their their writings were severely tainted because they had to justify the fact that they had taken over from the moguls so they did a lot of writing uh, which was intended to uh, denigrate them to make them seem like these um completely uh, you know uh, this uh, sort of dynasty which had which had gone to seed in whose women were completely locked up sequestered cloistered within these walls the women were com- uh, you know uh, were completely at the beck and call of the padshahs so 
it suited the English narrative and also the English did not have access to these women. There was a barrier of language, of culture, of accessibility. So when they heard stories in the bazaars, for example, about the incredible power that these women had, they tended to write all sorts of lurid fantasies about them. You know, how could these women possibly be so powerful? Oh, I know she must be sleeping with her father, like they said for Jahan Arab Begum and Shah Jahan, you know. Uh, so they sort of embroidered on all these uh, very sexualized tropes, which also came from the Ottoman Empire. That was how they viewed the Ottoman, the harem of the Ottoman Empire. And for the British writing about India, uh, all the Islamic, uh, you know, rulers were all the same, whether they were Ottoman or Turk or Timurid. For them, there was no difference. They were just Islamic rulers. So it suited their purpose to write about uh, the, the Mughal women in this light, writing about them as degraded, powerless, illiterate, um, you know, uh, women who had no control. Whereas actually, when you, when you start looking at the Persian sources, you see quite the contrary. You see the, the kings having to listen to their wives, their mothers, their sisters, take on the advice of all these powerful women. And these women who were creating a society side by side with the emperors, the culture that they created went along side that of their husbands or brothers or fathers. That actually uh, sort of leads me to my next question, which is, I want to talk a little bit about the terminology here. You know, you write that you prefer the term zinana, right? Um, and in, in the book, you have different terms for it, but you don't use uh, the harem term. And you talk about the orientalist associations with that, a lot of which, you know, comes from the British way of having, uh, you know, written about it and what that connotes. So can you explain for our listeners the Orientalist associations of the term harem and, and what's the usage and terms that you go by and why? Right. So you see, the, the the word harem, I felt, was very loaded today when we talk about the harem. It tends to be associated with, with this very simplistic, sexualized space, uh, which, uh, you know, in your in the back of your mind, you have this image, uh, you know, which grew out of these 18th, 17th, 18th century recordings of uh, an oriental harem, which was where you had one male living in the middle, surrounded by these hundreds and hundreds of nubile women who spent their time beautifying themselves, uh, you know, putting on jewelry and clothes, trying to attract the attention of this one available man. Um, and, and this image I found was uh, just so prevalent, so hard to shake, even I had it at the back of my mind, um, that I thought it would be useful to just dissociate uh, you know, my work from this term, because the Mughals are actually descendants of, of uh, you know, Amir Timur, they are Timurids, uh, and their entire uh, sort of lineage and their inheritance was in entirely different. They were semi-nomadic people, so their women traveled with them on horseback. There was no question of a settled space, as in Turkey, for example, where the women were within stone walls, within a palace. This did, just did not happen for many centuries. The women accompanied their men because they were always on, you know, going to war or settling new lands. Uh, and things like, uh, you know, the concept of divorce, of widowhood, women remarrying after being widows, was very pragmatically understood by these people because of their semi-nomadic background. And when they came to India and established the Mughal Empire, they brought these ideas with them. Um, so all this was very different to me from my uh, idea of what the er eroticized, exoticized harem, you know, con conjured up in people's mind. And I wanted to stay away with that. Uh, so I thought the use of the word zenana would be more useful because it's a local term. It's something that people are familiar with here. We have that polygamy here from a long time back as well within the Rajputs, for example. They had zenanas where they had. So we understand 
understand the Zagnana to be a very complicated, um, multifarious space where we have many generations of women. We have women who, uh, you know, carry out different chores. We have dancers, singers, cooks, priests, all of these women carrying out jobs. It's, uh, you know, almost an administrative setup. So I felt that people would better understand the concept that I was trying to explain in Daughters of the Sun than if I just used this term harem, which was a little too loaded for my use. Um, and and the book is divided into these two s- sections. And, you know, I thought it was very interesting how, you know, those sections kind of connote the difference culturally, right? The older generations of women, they're more culturally, uh, you know, they speak different language and then um, they're more free. They're kind of going about their own thing. They're traveling back and forth from Hajj. They're overseeing architectural projects Um and uh, <laughs> they're they're um, you know not really asking for permission to to do these things and 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 then in the second half they have their you know there's more Rajput uh, Persian influence and so uh, you know maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of how the culture um, you know changes and is evolving and then in in turn the culture that's present in the Zinana reverberates back to how it influences the emperor at the time. Yes. So that was, uh, you know, that was pretty key to my understanding, uh, you know, how I was going to present Daughters of the Sun to, uh, you know, a lay audience, for example. Um, And I wanted to move away from books which just uh, show the harem as a static entity or the Zanana as a static entity. So you will often have, you know, a history book on the Mughals and the women, uh, women of the Zanana will be one chapter tucked away somewhere between, you know, kitchen requirements and, you know, the the insignia of the soldiers Mm -hmm. or something like that. So you see, you see it as a stat, a static object, as if for two hundred years these women aren't changed. They don't, you know, they don't take in any influences. They don't influence anything. So I wanted to move away from that and show the readers that that was completely untrue. That obviously, when these women came into India, they were influenced by the country and they influenced the Padshahs and the country. And I wanted to show how this happened because it's actually very fascinating. So as we were saying, the older women or the women who came in with Babur and then Humayun. They were a certain type of matriarch. You know, they were very spirited, as you were saying. They knew their own minds. They were often used as ambassadors, which shows us that these timorid men really put a high stake on the, you know, the moral sort of... um, uh, the moral compass that these women afforded them. So they would be sent on dangerous missions as ambassadors for the for the Mughals. Um, and so they carried out all these uh, these jobs that required them to travel with no parda, uh, you know, very adventurous. Uh, they carried on, they went on this hajj, which took seven years. So they did things the way they wanted to do that. They spoke Turkish. They made sure the children growing up would speak Turkish. They, you know, they carried on with these traditions. And then comes uh, Akbar, and Akbar marries a lot of Rajput women in his quest to form this big stable empire. You know, one of the ways he uses uh, is to absorb the important Rajput families into the Mughal Empire by marrying their daughters and making the men uh, equally uh, you know, implicit in, in the success of the Mughal Empire. So this was his strategy. Uh, so as these Rajput women entered the, the, you know, the Zanana of the Mughals, they brought their traditions because Akbar very famously allowed them to, you know, maintain their religion, carry on with their rites and rituals. So they brought all these traditions, the tradition of the Parda, the tradition, uh, the, some of the women were vegetarians, uh, the fire worship. No, there's a great detail of, of uh, rites and traditions that they bring in with them, clothes, um, 
So you see in the space of the 50 years that Akbar reigns that the Zenana becomes a closer and closer space. The women uh, become known only by the exalted titles. You're not allowed to say their names anymore because they become these, um, you know, these women who are almost too uh, wonderful to even call by name, for you know, for example. And mm-hmm. that's something the Rajputs had. They also used the title of their father's clans or their husband's clans. You were not allowed to look upon them. Uh, so I thought this interaction was extremely, extremely interesting. And then going on later on to Jahangir Shah Jahan, as the empire got very, very rich, uh, the women somehow became more invisible, even though they began to have more and more wealth at their disposal. Uh, to do things like uh, commission amazing buildings like Jahan Ara Begum did, Mumta, uh, not so much uh, Mumtaz Mel, but Nur Jahan, the sort of power she commanded. So even though they are more invisible in a certain sense, they are richer and they are able to leave this astounding legacy in, in architecture, in art um, that still remains with us today. So yes, yeah, so this, this uh, you know, this sort of trajectory of the women over 200 years was a very fascinating one for me to look at. That's very interesting. Uh can you and I grew up in India, so my history lessons didn't really tell me any of this, to be honest. Can you talk a little bit about the the work and the architecture that they've left behind that we probably see every day, but we don't really know that this came from one of the women of the Mughal empires? Yes, so uh, you know that's that's such a fa- that has been a fascinating subject for me to discover. You know, as a Delhi woman myself. Uh, I didn't realize how much was built here by these Mughal women. For example, in Shah Jahanabad, uh, when Shah Jahan built what is today called Old Delhi, he basically built the, the Red Fort and the walls. And he said to his wives and his daughters and his noblemen that you can build all the remaining stru- and the Jama Masjid, of course, sorry. Uh, as for the other structures, he gave it over to all these people of wealth and influence and told them to go ahead and build what they wanted according to their wealth and ambition. And so many structures were built by his daughters, by Jahanara Begum, Roshnara Begum, and his wives, because we tend to th- obsess about Mumtaz Mahal by forgetting that he had many other wives besides Mumtaz Mahal. And these ladies carried on building in Shah Jahan, and, Shah, uh, and we have these amazing mosques, caravansarais, uh, marketplaces, and gardens that were built by these women. Sadly, a lot of Jahanara structures were destroyed post-1857. And the reason they were destroyed was that they were symbols of great power and wealth that the British wanted to show that they had annihilated once and for all. So I don't know if you will know this, but about 80% of the structures within the old fort have been destroyed. All that we have left is 20%. It was a massacre, you know. So they wanted to show the Mughal emperor who managed to gather all these uh, soldiers behind his name and who dared to oppose the British force in India. They wanted to show that this Mughal emperor is done once and for all. We will not only send him away on exile, we will destroy his structures. So not only did they destroy uh, the Red Fort, but also almost every single one of Jahanara Begum's structures. So that proves to me what a powerful woman she was, that they felt the need to destroy these amazing buildings. So she had a caravansarai right in the middle of Chandni Chowk. She had a hammam, you know, a baths built for the nobility of the city. She had the entire Chandni Chowk bazaar and the garden behind. And all this was uh, laid to ruin, as we know today, none of this stands. Um, So it takes a lot of work to get this back. You see old images, old writings about it, and you can recreate the sense of what she made. So 
uh, there's this one huge incident which was you know very interesting to me and another one is the building by a milk mother now we tend to think about all these mughal women as only the royal mm-hmm. women you know the royal daughters or sisters but the milk mothers were incredibly powerful too and these were women who nursed the the babies the, who would be future padshahs and they had because of that role they had they had a lot of wealth they became very rich women uh, because they were courted by the nobility because they had a lot of power and influence and one of the first major mughal buildings uh, built in delhi is actually not built by a padshah not built by a man it is built by a mahamanga you might all know her mm-hmm. as the milk milk mother of akbar and she built this amazing mosque and madrasa complex opposite what is the old fort today in delhi uh, and it is still there it is a little bit dilapidated but you can stumble across it and you see this magnificent structure which in its time was a massive testimony to the power and wealth of this woman because it was built in a very important place across from the deen pana um, and it's interesting today to remember that it was a milk mother who was the first builder of a mughal structure in delhi I'm so fascinated by like these individual women, right, who make up this harem which you've described as this place of productivity which I love, right? Because oftentimes and this goes back to something you were saying earlier, the zanana was kind of described as a place where women like adorn themselves for their men and lay about and even if you look at pop culture representations in India, right? Like if you look at Jodha Akbar or whatever, I was actually watching it yesterday just to see and you know Ashwarya Rai's Jodhabai just like lies around with rabbits and doves all day. <laughs> like It's such a bizarre representation of this world. So you're absolutely right. They're shown as these indolent women. And, right. uh, you know, they, they couldn't possibly have been doing that all their, their lives, right? Because firstly, most of them were not sexually available to the emperor. This is what we forget. You know, we are always told these 500 or 1,000 women, 5,000 women. Now, if you look at Fatehpur Sikri, they would have been like sardines in a box if there were 5,000 <laughs> yeah. women right there was a space for dancing and all around with rabbits or whatever right and you know and it's all it's so sexualized it's all about sex and it's you know they and there's like stories of lesbianism that come out of these zananas which like i don't even know if there's any historical ba- i mean if there was great but like i don't even know it's just what we've kind of exoticized this world as but so it was really interesting to me and i was hoping we could talk about like some particular women in this group that, like you said, weren't even the wives, right? You assume that the power is transferred to the Bajra's wife, but the Bajra Begums were often his aunt, his um, sister, right? I was hoping we could talk about Jahanara a little bit because, I mean, pardon my French, but she was a real badass, right? She kind of marries off all her brothers and then discovers Sufism. I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit more about her and like, why was she so prized in this world such that Aurangzeb, who she kind of opposed initially, right, still chose her to be his Bajah Begum? That's right. Um, so she's a fascinating woman, really. And I think amongst uh, all the Mughal women, she was probably the most powerful. She also came at the time when the Mughal Empire was at its greatest, you know, under Shah Jahan. It was by far the wealthiest and most glorious empire in the world. You know, we tend to forget that today in India because because of different reasons and different forces, we tend to, you know, ignore the Mughals for what they were, but they were really this very powerful and glorious empire. Uh, So she was born at this time. She was only 17 years old when her beloved mother, Mumtaz Mahal, died. And Shah Jahan, as you know, proof of the immense trust and respect he already had for her at 17, made her the Padshah Begum after Mumtaz Mahal. Uh, so immediately from a very young age, 
uh, Jahanara not only inherited this respect and this title, but also wealth, because she in inherited half the very, very enormous wealth of Mumtaz Mahal. Mm -hmm. She had left a, well, a will where she had said that half my wealth will go to Jahanara Begum, the remainder half will be divided amongst my remaining children. So she inherits of this enormous treasure at the age of 17, which means that everybody knew that she had direct access to Shah Jahan and she had access to all this money. So she was courted by all the noblemen, by all visiting dignitaries, by all the ambassadors, by all the British, the Portuguese, whoever was uh, wanting to come there for trade. Because interestingly, not only was she, uh, not only did she inherit all this wealth, but she wasn't like a good Indian businesswoman. She wanted to grow that, that wealth. So she invested in trade. You know, we had trade ships going to Mecca, for example, and they weren't carrying only pilgrims, they were carrying goods to trade and to bring back goods to trade in India. She became incredibly wealthy carrying out these trade, uh, trade through these ships. She even had her own personal ship. Um, so with the years, she became more and more powerful and she was courted by all, you know, all the nobility who gave her gifts. And so she just kept adding to her wealth. Um, but not only was she incredibly wealthy, you, you look at the things she did. Uh, with everything that she did, she sort of adds to her charisma as almost being maybe okay, maybe, maybe not being quite a pacha, but really just next in line because everything she did uh, tied into the charisma of the Timurids. For example, Sufism, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. Now the Timurids had all always aligned themselves with Sufism. This was an, you know, very well-worn path with kings that they allied themselves with some religious order. Uh, and both groups would uh, benefit from this. The, the Sufis would get the protection of the Pachas and the Pachas would get the spiritual aura of the Sufis. So the Mughals were deeply uh, invested in, in growing these connections. So Jahanara Begum, by calling herself a Sufi uh, and writing about her experiences, very rare at that time, you know, for a 17th century Mughal woman, she wrote a biography of herself. She wrote about the Sufi peers. So she lays claim to the same charisma that her father Shah Jahan exercises. So she says, look, I am almost at the level of Shah Jahan. I have the same Sufi experiences. Therefore, I'm deserving of the same sort of respect and glory. Then she brings a structure that we were talking about, you know, in the last section, structures which were also a part of the Mughal tradition of building, uh, of you know, creating this empire. Shah Jahan is a great builder amongst all the Mughals. So his daughter is doing the same thing. So she's very clearly uh, delineating in all these things her great authority, which is why Aurangzeb acknowledges this when he becomes emperor. He doesn't bring his own, uh, the, the sister who supported him the most, Roshnara Begum. He brings Jahanara because everybody knows that she is the one who really has claim to this original uh, you know, authority of the Mughals. It's not anybody else, it's Jahanara Begum. And interestingly, she remains unmarried. And you know what I find funny is that a lot of people at literature festivals would ask me, oh, but what a sad life she had. You know, she couldn't get married. The Badshah forbade it. I said, are you kidding me? She was the richest woman in the world at the time. Why would she tie herself down to Allah Subhanahu? <laughs> you know, I'm entirely sure she would not have wanted. And this was partly her decision because she was free to do what she wanted, you know, uh, do what she wanted with her money, influence the empire in whatever way she chose to do so. Uh, and no doubt she had discreet lovers, you know, that is perfectly uh, understandable and accepted that these things happened, that there was discretion. Um, but of course, uh, now in the 21st century, it seems somehow that you are unfulfilled if you don't have a husband back in the 17th century. That's amazing. I love that. So, I was just saying yesterday, Geetika was telling me, like, this is kind of like the, it's like what is the life that I, 
she'd want to lead because it's like you're in essentially a commune with all your girlfriends occasionally you'd have to put up put up with a man this is actually my dream i was like i get to live with all my like girls and like hang out and be productive and then like occasionally give like advice and gyan to a king like who doesn't want this life yes. <laughs> well you know in a in a way it reminds me of say uh, all girls boarding schools you know we we've, yeah. we've thought that okay we should have a co-ed system which is fine but in a bo- all girls boarding school the girls actually thrive because they have all the positions open to them they are sports captain they are you know they can be whatever they want to be without having to compete with boys and they really flourish in such an environment so i think the zanana in some ways was a little bit like that yeah i mean it's a it's a lifestyle i'd be okay going back to to be perfectly honest <laughs> for what it's worth ira i went to engineering school which is the opposite of an all girls boarding school and which has the opposite effect on boys which is like my social skills my social skills probably regressed after my four years of engineering <laughs> if there's one thing we've learned from these mogul women is that the men need the women more than the women need the men <laughs> <laughs> but it's an empowering message i think i think women today need to hear this and we have been told for too long that they have not been examples of women like this not from within the muslim you know from the muslim empires right. so it i think it's really empowering empowering for girls today women today to to hear that that was not so and that we have been served a very uh you know disjointed and tainted view of that history I want to just uh give some applause for Noor Jahan or Merunisa. Um it's her story is so incredible and you know she's widowed and marries Jahangir so so late. Um and then he you know he's so committed to her and then she like runs so many things and she has her own seal and talk a little bit about that she even has her like coins in her own name right she does yes yes i think she's the one who comes closest to being too i think rubilal has called her the co-sovereign and she's right. the only one of the mogul women who could be called a co-sovereign because she really uh one can say that by the time she marries uh, Jahangir Jahangir is is getting on he he keeps very poor health you know he's been an alcoholic and an opium addict all his life so he he's uh, you know he's not doing very well and he's not feeling very active and and he trusts her so much that he gives over a lot of his power to her uh to mm-hmm. oversee uh, a lot of things you know to, to oversee grand banquets and to oversee uh you know uh, the 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 details that make up the essence of mughal you know culture uh and she does it with a great deal of panache she's a huntress apparently she's a great shot uh, with the rifle um she as you say she has a coins minted in her name and she has paintings made of her unique for the time which is the jharoka darshan you know where she is at a uh, uh, you will all know about the jharoka darshan you know where the uh, emperor presented himself every morning following the hindu ritual the customs of presenting yourself to be seen by your people uh, and then you, you this sort of became a style of painting painting the the, the uh, emperor in a jharoka within a window setting you know it became an imperial symbol only the king could could be painted within that window setting and nur jahan is painted uh, you know like that. that very rarely for a woman uh, so even in painting she made sure that you know her legacy would be marked like that um so a very very interesting and and unique woman uh, and i think what fascinated i didn't write a great deal about noor jahan because she came if you like uh, from outside the mughal fold she was a persian woman her family migrated into india at that time she was a baby when she was born here uh, so 
in a sense, she represents a slightly different lineage, a slightly different uh, strain to the one that I was making, you know, the, the, the idea that the Mughal women were carrying on this tradition, which of course she does, but in a different vein. So I didn't write too much about her, except to point out that her sense of aesthetics, uh, you know, I think by far, you know, may perhaps exceeds that of any single other person within the Mughals. Uh, because if you look at the Itmat Uddola's tomb that she had built for her parents, which is uh, in Agra, you know, and is believed to, uh, to serve as a template for the Taj Mahal, it is a thing of absolute beauty. And it is said that she took a lot of interest in making it as the first building made purely of marble. And we forget because the Taj Mahal is so close by and it is so overpowering. Uh, we mm -hmm. tend to forget Itmat Uddola's tomb, Nojaha's tomb for her parents but it is a thing of great beauty uh, and I think it really symbolizes all that Noor Jahan was able to give to the empire, her great sense of taste, of aesthetics, of fine, fine jewelry, fine clothing. She designed a lot of clothing herself. So for me, that really symbolizes the essence of, of Noor Jahan. What I found very interesting is that also because her marriage and her relationship uh, came so late in both of her and her husband's lives, you know, they didn't uh, produce any children. And the relationship was kind of away from that, you know, stereotype of like, you know, these women are there to produce heirs, except they had this loving or, you know, Jahangir had this love for her. Yes. No, that's very. Uh, that's a very good point. And uh, Parvati Sharma, writer, has written very beautifully about this aspect. She's written a biography of Jahangir, and she has said that uh, since she was much older, you know, at the time she got married, uh, Nurja, she already had a daughter. Uh, uh, by that time, I think she was in her late thirties. You're considered, you know, a middle-aged old lady uh, in the 17th century. You know, um, at 15, you're often married off, so you are no longer considered nubile at that age. Uh, so clearly, uh, Jahangir looked for something else from her. And Parvati describes this like, a, you know, a comfortably married couple's love for each other, where they grow into this middle age together, and they clearly have a lot in common. And Jahangir is the great aesthete amongst the Mughals. You know, he had this wonderful eye for paintings. So I think this is what he valued in his wife, is her equally fine sen sensibility. Um, and you're absolutely right that it is not this massive, overweening, lustful passion that drives these two people together. It is something altogether different and unique in the Mughal world. And Shah Jahan, and in, in, a, in a similar but opposite vein, like Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal, also this epic love story that inspires the Taj, they also... I mean, she dies in childbirth. She keeps having so many you know, children every year. Um, yeah. But they also have this very intense relationship as well, which is, I think you write about how it's unique in that way. That's right, because, you know, most of the Mughals uh, had many wives, you know, there's no question for reasons of polity, you know, pragmatic, um, they needed to settle the empire, they needed to build alliances, but Shah Jahan only had children with the Mumtaz Mahal, that's a pretty extraordinary thing. But here's the here's the thing, uh, we've, you know, we've created this legend in our, uh, you know, mythology, our subconscious, and so I was not going to write about Mumtaz Mahal at all, and then my public Publisher came to me and he said, Ira, I read your script and you cannot have women of the Mughal Empire without writing. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back to the drawing board and find out all I could about Muntaz Mel. And I'm sorry to say it's very scant. Uh, you know, she hasn't built anything. She hasn't left writings. She was busy, you know, producing children for yeah, the Empire. Yeah, she didn't so, have yeah. time. She, she was pregnant all the time. <laughs> She was pregnant, poor woman, literally yeah. all the time and all traveling the time. all the time. Yeah. You know? So it was a very hard life. 
Um, so I uh, yes, I, I focused on this this what was clearly an extremely intimate love between the two of them. You know, which is very rare for the times. Never mind the Mughals for the times. It's extremely rare, um, and it tells of the extraordinary um, power that Mumtaz Mahal had for Shah Jahan. How much he loved her. But yes, so her greatest legacy were her children, because look what so many of them went on to do. Look what Jahanara did, even Roshanara, Aurangzeb. Let's not even go there, right? But uh, so all these uh, children with the extraordinary destinies—that was her legacy. And one thing that I found fascinating was that the Mughal dynasty or the empire is seen as sort of regressed, or quote unquote regressed our society into something less uh, progressive. But compared to what was happening in the world around at the time, the Mughals were actually way more progressive than, say, the British, where, like you mentioned on one of your talks, the women could not own property; they had no agency over their wealth. Right? That's right. That's right. In fact, that's why some of the British men who were here at that time were so horrified because back home, their women, their women would not be commanding; they would not be talking like this, you know, in public about what they wanted to do. Um, there is an interesting write-up, uh, and I forget, uh, Lady Montague. I think she was the wife of the English ambassador to Turkey uh, at that time. I think it was the 17th century. Um, and she writes these interesting letters back home after visiting, you know, uh, the, the the ladies of the harem in, in in the Ottoman Empire. And she says, "Oh my goodness, you know, uh, we always think that uh, we are the ones who have freedom. Our women are emancipated." But when I went and saw how these ladies, they, they were all having, uh, they went to the hammams together to have a bath. And she said, these women, they just, you know, they uh, when they saw me uh, take off my clothes and I had all these whalebone corsets and I was tied up, you know, and they laughed at me and said, you tell me that, our, you tell us that our husbands are cruel to us. Look how they make you dress up in these whalebone corsets and things, you know. So I think it's very interesting and very important to remember, uh, you know, the prejudice that lies behind a lot of writing and um, uh, that we, we must remember also things like uh, you know the divorce being accepted amongst the Mughals a remarriage of widows uh, things like uh, trying to raise the minimum age of girls that Akbar tried very hard to do uh, all these things were very progressive for that time anywhere in the world uh, and so it is interesting to remember that when we you when people criticize very easily and uh, you know just parrot this the same line that uh, that that these were just backward women in the harem that's really not true and we need to to lend a critical eye to all these things i kind of wanted to move on to more pop culture representations and kind of um talk a little bit more about akbar which i haven't had a chance to read that book of yours yet but um he's one of our most uh represented i guess you could say muggles right like we there's so many stories about him there's so many movies about him so do you have a like a pop culture representation of him that you think is the most accurate that most well researched i would love your thoughts on like ashutosh kwarkar's jodha akbar and um you know they're all these representations, and there's so many of them. There's the Akbal Birbal story that we read right. as children, Amachitwakathas. There's the idea of the new religion he created, the Dine Lahi, the idea of Jodha and Jodha Akbar. Let mm-hmm. me tell you, they are all untrue. Every <laughs> last single one. I'm so sorry for all your listeners who might have been holding on to all this. Uh, that's me. That's basically what I grew up reading. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You shattered Sarm's childhood. (laughs) You shattered. (laughs) They are all untrue. And um, 
I think that Jodha Akbar is a particularly uh, tenacious one, especially because Bollywood has adopted it, uh, you know, like this. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong per se, but it's just the the way in which um, the incredible, uh, you know, uh, influence that the Rajput had, that this Rajput woman, his first wife, was not from, was not Jodha, she was not from Jodhpur, she was from Jaipur, which at that time was Amer, it wasn't even Jaipur. So it was a woman called Harkabai, she was his first Rajput, uh, you know, wife, and she's the one who influenced him so strongly in these many respects, the mother of Salim, the later Jahangir. So somewhere along the line, she became Jodha, you know, and so the association became Jodha. So that's incorrect. And also to focus only on the love story angle of it. Now, Akbar was a very busy man. You know, he had a lot of empire building to do. He did not have the time to sing and dance around the way we would, you know, have, <laughs> they would have us believe. Uh, so the influence, I don't think, was in this, in, these, in this sort of intimate love story. But it was, like I was saying earlier, through the kitchen, through the food, through the tradition, through the, uh, you know, the fire worship, through the names of the sun, the different, uh, you know, religious names for the sun. These are the small, small influences that crept into the Mughal court and made such a huge influence on Akbar. Um, his attitude towards the Hindu, the Rajput, all that, I think, also came through his Rajput wives. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to me because a big part of the film, Joe Akbar, is that like he, he like vows to marry no one else and all that stuff. Akbar had like 11, 12 wives. Like yeah, he yeah, did. Yes. And, and those were the ones that, you know, were, were, were acknowledged. There were many others right. because, you know, he really is the one who expanded the empire enormously. And he did so by accepting alliances. Everybody uh, became very keen to offer a daughter in marriage so that they would also be assured a place in the, you know, in the empire. So he had many wives and there's no question of him. He would have like had to give up on an empire building strategy if he told Harka so early in his life, uh, I think this was uh, 1562, he would have been 20 odd. Uh, it would have been absolute, uh, you know, idiocy for an, uh, for a king to, to say such a thing. You know, Geetika and I were discussing last night, uh, because I also rewatched Jodha Akbar this week. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's what I could think of when I was reading the book, was visualizing it. And it did introduce us to like the milk mother of Akbar Maham Anga, or I don't know if it's yeah. pronounced how she's pronounced and um but the conflict is like completely false it seems like she, you know it's between the women and you know that she lost power beforehand it didn't have anything to do with Harkabai and his wife no like, that's right and they, they you know that's this is what uh this is my grievance against this kind of storytelling is that women are often pitted against each yeah. other um and if a woman does something slightly ambitious you use words like grasping uh, you know, overly greedy uh, or, or, or scheming. These are the words associated with Mahamanga. Mahamanga, of course, poor woman died much before Harkabai had anything to do in the empire. Um, so uh, this is this is my this is the sort of thing I want to fight back against. Say just because a woman is ambitious yeah. and she knows how to play her cards well uh, and she has uh, you know desires and she wants to create things doesn't really make her scheming and uh, screeching and all these sort. The, the terminology we use for ambitious women. So that also makes me happy because it seems like Harkabai did not spend the first 10, 15 minutes of her morning looking at Akbar exercising and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't have to live up to Ritik Roshan's ideals of what a, what a man's body should look like. I cannot imagine of somebody more unlike Akbar physically than Ritik Roshan. I have to go <laughs> All respect to Ritik Roshan, but really, they could have tried a little harder. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I just like, can we find a conflict in these stories? That's not women against women, women. right? Like there's exactly. so much, there's so much other interesting stuff than a woman yeah. as an object of yeah. desire or two women exactly. fighting for power. Fighting, yes. And it's just, it's so disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because it was the men that were fighting amongst fighting. themselves. Yes, of course. Father against brother, father against son, yes. blinding your son, trying yes. to overthrow your dad. And they could trust the women. That's, that's exactly right. And in fact, the women often acted together when they wanted to do something important, like support a prince. So if there was a particular prince they really liked, like Salim, the later Jahangir, they were very fond of Salim. All the women acted in concert to protect him against his father's wrath, to protect him from his own foolishness. So you could see that cohesive uh, power behind the women. They would, I mean, they would have been foolish to work against each other. That would have just diminished them, right? So they were much too clever to do that. They often acted in concert, you know. So they acted as a group, as as a block almost, like uh, you know, and, and exerted influence on the pacha and Akbar, especially, really never dared to go against these women. It's, and it, there's this amazing scene you describe with Salim Jahangir and where the he he's thinking of uh, you know punishing somebody and the women uh, you know just in the court like summon him to the zanana and be like why don't you just come talk to us <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think one of them uh, says to him uh, we suggest that the pacha comes to us else we may have to come to him. <laughs> <laughs> The threat in that line. <laughs> it almost seems like it's like a bunch of um, like very uh, like respected principals managing a basically a school of spoiled children, and they're like, <laughs> "Ah, this idiot has done this again. Call him, call him to my office." <laughs> yes. I mean, thank you so much, Ira, for bringing this to all of our attention because this has like really changed the way, and I really hope our listeners can appreciate how like patriarchal and like Victorian our understanding of the Mughals is right like we we you know now say like oh the British and fight so hard against like what they brought into our country but we've changed our perception of a great empire because of them exactly yes absolutely a lot of our history really has the the influence of the British who wrote who wrote the history for us the, all our history books were written by them so we must remember that always question it I really want to you know shout out the amazing research you've done to find and chronicle these stories because yeah, you know and you, know, you can describe a little bit more about you know finding the you know I, I thought it would be interesting the you know historians and um biographers from Akbar's time that yes. you know you talk about that you you Badawni and uh, yes. Abu Faisal uh, yes. Abu Faisal that you know you, you you look at the tension you look at their texts and their narratives yeah. and you derive the tension what they think they're more conservative what they think about the women and kind of see what what stories exist in that exactly yeah that that was fun to do and when I wrote Akbar uh, I thought it would be interesting for the readers to realize where these texts come from what is the background of the writer so I actually written the lives of Abu al-Fazl and Badawni who are contemporaries into Akbar's life so that the reader can say, oh, okay, so this is what happens to Badawni. He falls from grace. He becomes dissatisfied, very bitter man, even though he's talented. This may be why he's writing the way he does. Abu al-Fazl flourishes. That may be why he becomes the man uh, who writes, you know, the Ani Akbari. So I thought that would be, uh, you know, an interesting thing to for the readers to discover as they read the book. 
And I just want to say hilarious. Akbar has a good sense of humor. He gave Badawni, this conservative <laughs> Muslim man, the task of translating the Mahabharat. That's right. <laughs> four years, he was like, you go and translate the Mahabharat. Then he's like working away at it. <laughs> Exactly. And the sort of things he writes in his biography that this is full of puerile absurdity. They're writing about turnips and eating turnips or whether we shouldn't eat turnips. What nonsense is this? <laughs> it's hilarious. It's really fun. Whenever I had, I became just uh, overcome by Abu al-Fazl, who's written huge, uh, huge work on Akbar. I would read Badawani for a change and feel a little happier. About <laughs> but it's also interesting. And I think you talk about this um, it, with respect to Gulba then in that like she describes her father as like quite loving and like she has like a completely different perspective than the other biographers at the time right who like and I think like there is something to be said about like the feminine perspective versus like you know somebody who's seeing just a guy on the battlefield or in a courtroom like she sees like the intimate side of him and we need that perspective as well to like flush out these men as much as you know that's right. And I, you know, I'm often asked this question. And I and I always say that I don't think it ever demeans the men to have this aspect added to them. On the contrary, if you can see Akbar as a very forward-thinking father of daughters who's concerned about the, you know, the, the, the legality of his daughter's inheritance, for example, that adds to the man. It doesn't diminish him in any way. Babur similarly, if we see beyond the warrior conqueror and see him as a father, as a husband who's waiting to see his wife, how does it demean? in him in any way doesn't so you know we should be eager to find more such sources and not be afraid of them do, do you feel like because growing up in india we have a tendency to defy or look for heroes in history do you feel like some of these humanizing aspects are ignored because of that or overlooked or deliberately suppressed i think they are i think they are suppressed i think they are there in the beginning so you know we haven't looked at herons very much but in herons that's what i did i looked at the sources i've written at the time of the women so those original sources often talk about these women as human beings they'll talk about their faults as well as their greatness uh, and present them as rounded characters uh, and then with the centuries with time we become much more limiting in the way we uh, accept to see our great women you know there's a sort of uh, um, Brahminical almost rewriting of history and women have to fit into narrow and narrower modes. Um, so that is something that we must fight against because um, uh, it doesn't serve, you know, women's purpose today. Uh, then we are told that feminism doesn't exist. It's a foreign con concept to India, whereas that's patently untrue. There are women who have fought for the rights of other women through the centuries, you know, going back in time. So so it's important to do this exercise, you know, and bring these stories uh, just back for, for people to have easy access to. And uh, actually, if I could follow up on that, in India, we kind of tend to blend mythology into history. That's a really tricky and tricky slope and also growing up there it's it almost i mean the way its stories are told mythology is told and the way it's promoted in tourism it's like almost it's almost like it happened like it's like oh this is where they fought the battle of kurukshetra and that's why the soil is red because it is like red with the blood of the soldiers but then how do you as a author of history books historian how do you deal with such a society and such thinking and how do you tell them like there is a difference between mythology and history. 
It's a tough one, you know. Over in India, I feel that the mythological characters have almost more relevance than the historical ones do, you know. So you, you just have to see the Ram Leela and look at the fervor around the time of La- Ram Leela. People know every single line of the play. They'll, you know, they're able to recite it, and it's part of of who they are. They really, they are really aware of all the nuances. But if you tell them about Razia Sultan or some other historical woman, they will hardly know one line from their textbooks, uh, you know, about her. So it's a tricky one, you know, um, nothing wrong with mythology is wonderful. It helps, you know, in the creation of all sorts of stories. It helps us make sense of our lives. Um, but even within mythology, if we are to accept that it's a very important part of our lives and it is used often with women to tell them how to behave and how to be and how to be good Indian women, then even there, there's scope for understanding the epics as they were written. The Mahabharata, for example, is a much more complicated and nuanced piece of work uh, than sometimes we are led to believe, you know, when we are always told that, you know, well, this is how you must be. We forget the great um, flood of anger at the right at the core of the Mahabharata, which is Draupadi's anger, the way she was mm-hmm. treated, you know, in the Mahasabha. So, right. I'm all for talking about mythology, uh, especially because it is, you know, as I was saying, it is so relevant in India. But let us understand some of these uh, um, uh, epics and myths and the the sort of uh, the lessons that they were trying to impart, uh, peeling back the many, many centuries of Brahminical revisions and uh, moralizing and storytelling uh, so that we get to the core and essence of these stories. As a huge uh, nerd of the uh, Mahabharata, and the complexities of the Mahabharata uh, myself, as are all of us here. Um, I, I want to say that I'm really looking forward to your upcoming book. Can you tell us about it? Yes. So um, it's called um, Song of Draupadi. And uh, it's a work of fiction, uh, but it takes the Mahabharata and it comes from the same space. It was actually my first manuscript. So I wrote it seven, eight years ago when my kids were small. Uh, and, you know, Ramlila, all these things, the Mahabharata, the stories uh, are so much part of our lives here in India. So I wanted to tell my kids the, the, the stories. But the more I looked at what was available in popular culture, the more aghast I was because, you know, Draupadi over the years had become this Punjabified, fair, overtly feminine woman with a lot of jewelry all the time. And I was like, who is, I don't recognize her from the text. Draupadi that we remember is the woman who spent 13 years in exile with her husband, wearing clothes of bark and reed, refusing to comb her hair, using that symbol, uh, you know, as a, a unwillingness to be domesticated because of the great injustice done to her, a woman who would not swallow her rage, who would who would let that rage explode. And I think it is important to tap into women's rage. I think women have to be able to channel their rage and their anger. Uh, we, we have to stop telling women to be a certain way, to be nice, to be, you know, the way that they would like, you know, the, the completely domestic version of Draupadi as always presented, we have to be shown this other Draupadi who was allowed in the time of the epics to be this furious, angry, undomesticated woman with the flowing hair and the symbology of blood because she demanded blood for what was done to her. So these are the sort of things that I hope to bring out, uh, you know, in the book, but also a lot of the other women. I deal with a lot of the other women, right from Satyavati to Ganga to Kunti, um, you know, down, down the ages. So uh, Gandhari. So I hope it will be a different take on um, the Mahabharata. Very few battle scenes, unfortunately, for those who are fans, <laughs> but much more what happens between the women. 
but the battle scenes, in my opinion, so Veda and I, it's like friendship is like formed on the Mahabharata. <laughs> like, when we, not kidding. Like, the war. Not but, the war. But not the war. Like, we right. became friends in high school and like were those okay. nerds that were like, isn't it so cool that like, you know, like the, the nuances, the relationships, but the relationships yes. and the like, to use like a Hindi word, the zid of these women, right? Yes, like, yes. like Gandhari ties a yes. blindfold on her yes. eyes. Exactly. In, in like an act of like, you know, and I think it's like framed in very much like, oh, like, yes. hus- like the love of her husband. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, like she loved him so much. She never even saw him before. Oh, him, exactly. But like, she is so like, it's a conviction, right? She's yes. making a statement. Yes. These women are so strong and they're kind of sidelined. And when you actually talk about them, even um, who's Bhishma Padama's, um Amba. I was just going to ask. Is Amba. 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 Ambika yeah. and Ambalika, the princesses. Yeah. The princesses, but yeah. also and his stepmother. Who... Oh, oh yeah. Satyavati. Satyavati. Satyavati, who mm. sheer force of will. She's amazing. Oh my God, she is amazing. I mean, Ganga, right? Like she drowns six children before yes. yeah. he like ruins the seventh one's life. But like exactly. all of these things are the strength of these women. And I mean, Kunti with the whole current, like, yeah. I can't wait. There's for- more context to the drowning yes. of the children for those who don't know. So it's <laughs> it actually parallels a Greek myth. I, I don't know if you ladies read uh, Madeline Miller and you know Pat, uh, Pat Baker and all who write about the Greek myth or who retold Greek mythologies in a very modern way. But they were great uh, role models for me as well. And uh, the, it's exactly the same. I, I find a lot of similarities there. And um, all these women, they have defiance beyond what is told to us because there's no way they could have led the life they did even Kunti to have kept as a widow her five children together and strong and able to come back and claim their throne I mean it is all her doing uh, but we completely right. forget about them we focus on Bhishma and all the other male characters and also like to just pragmatically talk about it these women keep all of these men alive in the woods for like years and years right like years they like they survive because of these women like Draupadi for those 14 years Kunti after like the Lakshagra thing like and they're so pivotal right Draupadi marries five men all of this has context please read Ira's book for our non uh familiar listeners but because of Kunti right like these women are pivotal to this plot and you know, it just becomes about like Arjun and Duryodhan, which are honestly like the most single dimensional characters in the whole book. Agreed. Agreed. Yes. Um, and Satyavati, as you were saying, you know, the the real matriarch of this story, she's just a fisherwoman. She's not even, you know, a princess royal born. She's just this woman from this very insignificant tribal clan. And look at what she creates. Look at the legacy she leaves behind and that she's determined to create at any cost, you know, even if it means summoning the son she had out of wedlock and bringing him to impregnate yes. her daughters-in-law. Right. So extraordinary stuff. Yes. <laughs> And not at all, you know, kind of the Sati Savitri, like puritanical nonsense that we're fed today. These are bold women. <laughs> what is, I'm actually 
curious to know what is your process of researching when you're working on uh, stories that are mythological in nature? So it's it's obviously very different, you know, because the myths are myths. But um, so I I look at a lot of secondary work for for the myths because there's a lot of amazing scholarly work out there. Uh, you know, feminist writings, um, people who re- revisited the 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 epics with the feminist uh, you know point of view. But also, um, I mean, I'm sure you you ladies are fans, so you will know that uh, the the Mahabharat was written over a period of perhaps 800 to 1,000 years, and it was added to over the years. So it's this huge, unwieldy mass of, uh, of work. Uh, and there was an attempt made in, I think, to the 1970s to try to get to the crux of the story, to find the original text as much as possible, taking away the layers and layers of, uh, you know, storytelling, additions, moralizing, didactic revisions, which were clearly added on. So often when you have something which is deeply uncomfortable, you have an episode which is deeply uncomfortable, for example, Draupadi criticizing Yudhishthira for sitting quietly in the forest for all these years, and she's going on goading him saying are you sure you wouldn't just rather take up your weapons and go and fight the wretched man and get back your territory you know um so this is deeply unsettling for for later readers for the brahmins and so they very soon after that you'll have a passage where she is described as this perfect uh, wife she smiles all the time she never laughs very loudly whereas we know that her laughter is what gets with current is what gets her into trouble you know so you, you can see this attempt to bring her back within the mold to bring her back within a certain sanity version by later writings. So in the 1970s, there was an attempt to get to the original writings as much as possible. It is called the critical edition of the of the Mahabharat. So it's a very the Pune edition or the critical edition. So it's a very useful source to look at if you are trying to look at the version which existed before all the moralizing took over a little later. So that's also something I looked at. That's a great tip. And we're really looking forward to <laughs> To reading. I'm just thinking uh, aloud, uh, Lord Ganesh sure was busy for a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> just typing up the notes. I think away. <laughs> I, I understand how he feels now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you find yourself correcting people all the time? Suppose you're t- you, you get a friend from from outside, from a foreign country who visits and when or when you go for a tour of Delhi and the guide says something and you're like, no, no, that's not it. Do you find yourself doing that or do you find yourself correcting your daughter's textbooks sometimes? Uh, yeah, I, I wish I could. Uh, I find myself internally rolling my eyes a lot because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a woman of my generation and I have been told not to, you know, uh, c- contradict people too openly. So I prefer to do it through writing. So I, I find it difficult uh, to tell, especially a guide, it's their job, they've been told this, you know, and they all, so a most, uh, the funniest thing I was ever told was when I was researching Akbar and I went to Agra and we went to see Maria Muzzamani's tomb. So that's, uh, uh, you know, Harkabai's tomb, uh, Akbar's mm-hmm. wife. And she was mm-hmm. given the title, Maria Muzzamani. Uzzamani, Mary of the world. Now we know that Mary is a respected figure in Islamic uh, thinking because, you know, they have that Abrahamic link. Uh, So a lot of their women at Akbar's time, it was the fashion, you know, like today the fashion is Anya and all these names with A. (laughs) 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 Back in the, right? Internal, internal eye roll, right? (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Back in the 16th century, Mariam was, uh, you know, pretty popular. So all these ladies were given names like that, titles, titles like that. 
So it was Maryam Uzzamani's tomb. And the guide who took me to see her, her tomb said, okay, this is Maryam Uzzamani's tomb. This is the Christian wife of Akbar. I said, what? What? <laughs> he said, yeah, yes. <laughs> he said, yes, her name, her, name, uh, her name was Mary of the world. So she's Mary and she's a Christian woman who came into the harem. I said, oh my goodness, where do I begin? So usually <laughs> I, I just do the eye roll mentally and carry on. <laughs> But I do want to say that you have, um, you know, empowered the next generation of women to contradict and to kind of take it into their own hands and like, you know, become tour guides ourselves and, <laughs> you know, fight against. This. So that is what I do occasionally. I do an occasional, you know, guest tour guide uh, of the women's influence in in these structures. And it's very popular. People are so interested in finding out that that's so satisfying that people really want to know they, they don't know about this and they're very eager to find out more. I wish you could see our Google Doc. We have so many questions for you. I'm but, so glad. I'm so glad you liked the book and, and it it brought up questions for you. Yeah. I mean, t- I feel like I've been denied a history, yes. right? That's so exactly right. to be presented with it is thrilling, honestly, it as is. an Indian woman. Yeah. I think that that denial is exactly the right word that, you know, these examples, these stories, these histories, they really have been denied to us, um, you know, which means that what we are left with is, you know, a particularly bloodless and uninspiring. And uh, and so we really need to correct that urgently. And also for it's it's left behind such a binary view of what was such a complex time. History is not binary. And regardless of what your cultural ideologues say and regardless of how much you force yourself to conform to a certain ideology it's not going to happen and it's not i mean just because you want it to happen a certain way it does not mean it's going to happen doesn't make it true that's right doesn't make it true yes and i i just have one fo- final follow-up question from me i promise but do you given kind of going off what Sarb just said, like given the current political climate and this like, you know, it almost feels like binary nature of India right now where like ideologies are kind of just like yes or no, moral or not. Do you find some opposition to this work when you present these, you know, they've just been like kind of labeled as Muslim invaders and all of these things and they're being reframed as such. Do you find that people fight back against these like dynamic, fabulous women? Well, you know, at least for myself personally, um, I have to say no. Um, Yeah. Uh, So whether it is yet again that women are not considered important enough to be fought over, I don't know. Uh, But perhaps also that there's a sense that what I'm doing, I am not trying to blow anyone's trumpet. I am not trying to wave a flag here or to prove a point. I am really looking for the truth. I, I know, and it is an honest attempt. I, if there's something negative, I do try to write about that. If there's an acknowledgement that that work is being done, that there isn't um, grandstanding happening for any particular group. It is just, um, you know, uh, it's just a bringing to light Indian stories. These are Indian stories because, you know, as you were saying, there is no binary uh, and we are, we have such complicated textured identities here. You know, who am I? Who are you? It is not, it is really not black and white. If we try to break us down to two parts, it would be impossible. You know, uh, what we eat, how, how we clothe ourselves, the songs we sing, everything here in Delhi is influenced by the Mughals, whether we like it or not. Um, they were influenced by a great many things in the empire. So, we are a multitude. And I think that is our great force and our beauty. You know, after India, if you go visit a different country, you find it so 
you know, gray in a certain sense. There's such a lack of diversity, a lack of of this chaotic beauty that is India's, you know, and uh, uh, and and really, I would be very sad if we lost that. And that is all I am trying to do is celebrate and bring to life how this beauty came to be. What are the origins? What are the various strands that make up this great tapestry? And, and I guess the irony is that this is a dynasty, this is an empire that more or less kept moved to India, made it their home, and mm-hmm. kept the wealth in India as opposed to in the British India. who came, looted, and like left. Exactly. And we are more, we respect or we, I guess, give more importance to the British than to somebody That's who right. has left behind a exactly. legacy that has carried on our own culture. Exactly. And, you know, the, the nation state is a very modern concept. Uh, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, this did not exist. There were no borders. People came and went all the time. You know, there was trade, there were adventurers, there was traveling happening all, all the time. From back in, you know, from the very dawn of time, there is no such thing as a pure Indian sprung up from the Ganga, you know. Right. It does not exist. We are all made up of you know, a multitude of genetic material that come from all over. Uh, and there's no way that we are ever going to be able to, to you know, to, to completely wash that away if that is the aim of, of certain groups. Um, so so this, uh, the whole idea is that the Mughals were like many other kings, many other people who came into India at a certain time, they came here to found something here. They never came here to raid and go back, which is what Nadir Shah, for example, did, and Abdali, these people who came as raiders. The Mughals were looking for a home. They had been kicked out of their home in Samarkand. They were coming to found a home, a land, an empire. That is what they did. They created wealth such like had never been seen here before, and they kept it in the country. Uh, Very different to what was happening with the East India Company, who were a trading company who came just to make money so that they could take it back home and left a country devastated. Um, So yes, we absolutely need to remember that and uh, not equate uh, these two very different things. So that was it. Finally, double-digit episode. This time I got it right. Last time... I realized it at the end of the episode that it was episode 9, not 10. That was Ira Mukherjee. Please look forward to the release of her new book, The Song of Draupadi. Yeah, that was a fantastic conversation. Um, please let us know if you have any questions about anything we talked about, if you have any feedback. It was it, it was a fascinating experience for us to broad our understanding of history. And history is a dynamic, complicated discipline and narratives keep shifting. And Ira has really been contributing to understanding And her books are written for a more general audience. Um, Highly recommend reading Daughters of the Sun. We got through it very quickly. We were like texting each other and messaging each other being like, did you know? Interestingly, (laughs) I just want to say we didn't, uh, you know, discuss this in the conversation, but I just want to throw back to one of our earlier episodes and how all this stuff is interconnected. Malik Umber that we spoke about also um, is featured in the book. Ira talks about him and how like one of the emperors was like so sick of how this guy had been beating him. And it was Shah Jahan, the one who commissioned and built the Taj Mahal, that it actually ended up beating Malik Umber. And he got his title of Shah Jahan from his father after he beat Malik Umber. So that's a little interesting note. 
that I learned. Yeah, I mean, not to drag on this conversation, but you know, I had such a, because I did a lot of research for Molly Cumber, I had such kind of a negative perspective of Jahangir because of that interaction that they had, and he was kind of after Molly Cumber. And then when I read this book, and it shows you like, you know, perspective is everything, I felt quite bad for Jahangir. He was just kind of like, just a loser trying to make it in the world. <laughs> like he didn't know, you know, and this guy just would not stop pummeling him. He just couldn't get to the diamond mines. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he just, like, you know, I mean, it didn't help that he was also, like, drinking and doing drugs, but, (laughs) so it's just such an interesting perspective, and it reminds you that, like, you know, history has many sides, and exploring that is something we're really interested in, and we hope you're really interested in as well. So keep listening. We are on all the platforms where you can find podcasts, Spotify, Google Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Follow us on Instagram at 3DCThings. And we'll put up some interesting images and some extra bonus content on our website, 3DCThings.com. And as Veda mentioned, we are on all podcast platforms. If you like this episode, if you could rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it because it helps others find our show. And yeah, if you like it, give us feedback. Why not? Yeah, if you want to talk to us, we're available at 3DCThings at gmail.com. So send us an email with your thoughts. If you if there's something that you've been dying to know more about but don't have time to do the research, send that topic to us and we'll do it for you. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple weeks.